Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Inside Science Interview Series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is part of our Smithsonian Associates Inside Science Interview Series, and we have an excellent program about interstellar spaceflight, rocket science, and solar sails and their impact on interplanetary travel. You are going to want to hear this. Thank you so much for listening. As I say, we have got a great guest today who, after reading his new book, I've been looking forward to talking to him for a while. I'm going to introduce him in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 679th episode, and I spoke with historian, author, and Smithsonian associate Clay Jenkinson about Gulliver's Travels and the fascinating story within a story not just for children. Two weeks ago, I had another great conversation with the author and NFL legend, a member of the only team in NFL history to be undefeated, and the very entertaining Larry Zonka. Wonderful stuff. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. And if you leave a review... We will read it at the end of each show. Please leave reviews for us at Apple Podcasts. We love those. The age-old dream of venturing forth into the cosmos and perhaps even colonizing distant worlds all may one day become a reality, according to our guest today, physicist, NASA consultant, and Smithsonian Associate Les Johnson. Les Johnson will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up soon, so please check out our website and our show notes today for more details about Smithsonian Associates. Les Johnson has generously offered to read from his new book, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars. Let's listen. Humans have, since our beginning, looked at the stars and asked the big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? what or who is out there? We are close to being able to answer some of these questions as our species continues its exploration of space and prepares to take the first steps toward the stars. The stars are far more than beautiful points of light in the night sky. Far, far away, they harbor new worlds. It is difficult to believe that until the early 1990s, the only planets we knew scientifically existed in the universe were those orbiting our sun. With the growing list of known exoplanets, some of which appear to lie in the habitability zones of their parent stars, there are many beginning to wonder how we might someday travel there to explore them. Despite the optimism of the early space age, our progress toward this goal has been slower than many anticipated. This is not just for lack of trying. The challenges are daunting. The nearest star, Proxima Centauri, is about 4.2 light years away. That is, it takes light, traveling at 186,000 miles per second, over four years to make the journey. For most people, this is a meaningless measurement. 
how many of us can truly relate to the speed of light? To illustrate the difficulty, consider distances much closer and the challenges we face in traversing them. The Voyager spacecraft, launched in 1977, are the most distant emissaries yet launched from Earth. Voyager 1 is approximately 156 astronomical units away as of this writing. 156 times the sun to earth distance of 93 million miles. And it has taken it more than 44 years to get there. For up-to-date information about Voyager's location, check out the NASA website, voyager.jpl.nasa.gov. If the Voyagers were traveling in the correct direction, then it would take them about 70,000 years to reach Proxima Centauri. And that's the nearest star. The duration of a viable interstellar journey must be measured in years, not millennia, for such missions to be undertaken. Propulsion is not the only challenge. How would such a spacecraft communicate across such vast instances? Far away from any star, how can the craft be powered on its journey through the darkness between the stars? Traveling at the speeds necessary to shorten the trip time will increase the risk of damage to the craft from collision with interstellar dust a potentially catastrophic event when traveling at a significant fraction of the speed of light. Fortunately, nature appears to allow rapid interstellar travel without having to invoke new physics. Propulsion technologies based on nuclear fusion, antimatter, and laser-beamed energy all appear to be physically possible, but the engineering of systems of the scale required is well beyond today's capabilities. If we are to undertake this ultimate voyage, we must first inhabit much of our own solar system. Interstellar travel will require new technologies, a new ethical framework for exploration that will enable us to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past, and a visionary mindset that is reminiscent of the construction of the great cathedrals of Europe. The notion that a project begun today may not be complete for many generations to come. And then there is the question of why. Why should we travel to the stars? For that matter, why should we explore space at all? In the first 50 plus years of the space age, we now have compelling and nearly universally accepted reasons for the exploration and development of space near Earth and in Earth orbit. Weather satellites allow meteorologists to provide fairly accurate weather forecasts days and weeks into the future. They also help us predict the paths of hurricanes and cyclones, saving lives. Communication satellites knit the world together, allowing us to know what's happening all over the world in real time. They relay our television channels and some cell phone conversations, while large constellations of communication satellites are beginning to provide broadband internet accessible everywhere around the globe. Spy satellites help keep the peace by allowing countries to monitor one another's military activities, nearly removing the possibility of surprising attacks, an important part of strategic safety in our nuclear weapons armed world. Global positioning system satellites allow us to navigate to new places and are essential to keeping our highly interdependent world and global economy functioning. Space near Earth is now indispensable to our daily lives and well-being. Many advocates believe that the next logical step in the development of cislunar space, the region between the Earth and the Moon, with NASA and other countries planning to send people to the Moon in the coming years, there is an expectation that new products and services will arise there just as they did in Earth orbit.
The argument is then extended out into the solar system and ultimately to the stars. As a scientist, I believe there is a valid reason for exploring space, including space beyond our meager solar system, that has nothing to do with economics or tangible return. To learn more about the universe, what's out there and how it works. All of the engineering we use to keep our 21st century lives functioning stemmed from scientists in early eras asking similar fundamental questions at the time may or may not have had obvious economic return or application. Expanding human knowledge is as valid a reason as any other. There are objections to these views and some sticky ethical questions that arise when thinking about our expansion into space and then on to the stars. Many of these are addressed in chapter three, putting interstellar travel into context. Interstellar travel is possible, just extremely difficult. Are we willing to accept the challenge? That, of course, is our guest today, Smithsonian Associate Les Johnson, reading from his new book, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars. We will be talking about all of that and more, this wonderful idea that Les Johnson has about advancing to interstellar travel and how and when in our lifetimes we will be boarding rocket ships. Les Johnson is a scientist and author and deputy manager for NASA's Advanced Concepts Office at the Marshall Space Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Inside Science interview series on radio and podcast, Les Johnson. Les Johnson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. Uh, Of course, you've written this wonderful new book, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars. You're the author of many others. You'll be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. I'm excited to talk to you. I know our audience is just going to love this. We're going to talk about space travel, among many other things. And I I do not mean to minimize this in any way with just that, uh, those, those couple of words. But why don't you, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. You're going to be on Zoom and uh, we're all on Zoom these days, but maybe tell us about how you'll, you'll engage our audience using Zoom too. Yeah. Thanks for asking that question, because when I'm talking about interstellar travel or just about anything, I like to share some visuals as well as explain things in, in the talk, because uh, space is uh, immense, it's beautiful, and, and conveying some of the thoughts really require the interactive nature of, of Zoom, being able to show some slides, some comparatives uh, that I'll have to, to walk through. Um, I'm not the best at uh, simultaneously giving a presentation and monitoring chat, so that's the biggest challenge I have using Zoom is I really uh, rely on other people to help ask questions that that pop up, not necessarily uh, me doing the chat. But what that does is that enables people as they think of questions to put them in the queue so if they're waiting, they don't forget. It also gives me a record after it's over of the kinds of questions people have So perhaps they can follow up afterward and I can answer them as we go. So um, the interactive nature of doing this uh, visually as well as auditorily and and the chat feature, uh, I think it will hopefully make it a better presentation than it would just be if it were a standard lecture. I don't want people to be put to sleep. I want to talk to them. And, uh, And I think having the face in front of folks helps a lot. That's great. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, you really have this reputation for bringing things into a you know into a, a conversation that we can all understand. You're a a, a physics uh, expert. You work at NASA. You are literally a rocket scientist. But 
so much of what I've read about you, you really put this into a perspective so that we can we can understand uh, what you see in the beauty of space. And, and I love that. Some of the pictures that we're getting back from the Webb telescope are gorgeous. I'm hoping maybe you're going to share some of those. But let's let's start at kind of a basic element with this idea of physics um, and motion. And Newton, Isaac Newton, of course, Sir Isaac Newton, had um, – stated really the three laws of physics, the the first, the second, and the third have to do with motion. But beyond motion, what are these challenges? Because they've they've got to be immense that, that we're going to face, the physical, technical, biological, social challenges, even, even some ethical challenges uh, that we're going to face in attempting this human space exploration beyond what we've already accomplished? Well, the challenges, as you've just listed a few, are pretty immense. And I'll have to tell people listening to this, they'll have to come to the lecture to hear in detail how they need to be addressed. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also have to give the caveat that you mentioned I work for NASA, but I do all the book writing on my own time. And, and my opinions are strictly my own. They don't represent my employer uh, because they, they, don't, they don't either necessarily endorse what I write. Um, Thank you. When we look at this, the distances are so vast, you have to ask the question, why are you going? Well, you're going for science and exploration and to see what's there. The only point of doing that is if you can tell people back home that you've done it. So that means you either have to go and come back, which is twice as hard. Actually, it's worse than twice as hard for for reasons we we can go into because you have to take so much propellant to do that. But the other challenges are communicating. How do you get the data back? We, we've never tried to communicate and send any kind of intelligence signal across 4.2 light years of space. So we've got to figure out um, once we get there and we're seeing what's there and we're taking scientific measurements and taking pictures and movies and wanting to communicate that back home, how do we get it home? Do we have the power? How do we build a big antenna? Uh, will people back home know when to listen for that? There's the challenge of keeping spacecraft alive. When you're far from the sun, you don't have the sun's energy to warm you up or to produce power using solar cells. So are, are you going to carry a power source with you or are you going to develop systems that can just basically completely shut down in the deep cold of space for four, four, year, uh, four light years and then wake up again when they get to the star and will they work? And this is just the robotic systems. If you start thinking about sending people, it gets even more complicated uh, because we are big squishy bags of, of stuff that take a lot to keep us alive and functioning. And uh, the mass involved in sending people is just enormous. So I don't think that'll be what we do first. I think it'll be robotic probes. You've also got the challenge of navigation. How do you keep on track, especially if you're going uh, really, really fast? You don't want to miss your target. Uh, and if you're, if you're, if you're, your navigation is a little bit off, you certainly don't want to have your robotic spacecraft hit a planet. Because if you're going in a sizable fraction or even a small fraction, really, of the speed of light, um, uh, a small spacecraft weighing just the same as a Coke can uh, might be the same energy released if it hits the planet going really fast as an atomic bomb. So people, I, I think getting your arms around the, the energy required to take the trip, uh, the time, uh, how, what's people's threshold for time? Uh, if we launch a mission and we have to wait 20 years for data, okay, we've done that before. The Voyagers are now in their 40-some year of travel. But are we going to launch a probe and, and hope that we get data back in a 1,000 years? Will our descendants care? I don't know. And then that begs the question of what do you find when you get there? Do we contaminate it? Is there life out there? 
we don't know. That's part of why we're going. So these are just some of the challenges and, and the questions that I try to address and that I think we as a society will have to address. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Again, uh, we are with Les Johnson. Les Johnson is author of the new book, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars. Les Johnson will be appearing at Smithsonian Associate to answer all of these questions. I I just think it's going to be a wonderful presentation. We just encourage our audience to check this out. Check out Les Johnson's new book. Well, let me ask you then, specifically, given kind of where we are and and from your perspective um, in terms of your work on this and your research on this subject, that is interstellar travel, you you say that the laws of physics don't say that interstellar travel is impossible. It's just very difficult. From from all of the things that you've just listed, from people's thresholds, the communications, the keeping the spacecraft alive, what's the most difficult part of this? Where where are we going to potentially stumble? All of the above. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Kind of getting it really that. is a matter of scale. Uh, I think mm-hmm. a lot about propulsion, and uh, w- when we think about how we do this, we have to think on a totally different scale than anything we've done before in terms of spacecraft design and propulsion systems. You have to think about energies equivalent to a sizable fraction of the total electrical power produced on Earth today, right, uh, to get really high-speed uh, travel between the stars. Um, when you think about the communications problem I just mentioned, In all likelihood, if we're going to have high data rate communication, it's going to take a lot of power and it's going to take radio dishes that have uh, apertures that might be a mile across as opposed to, uh, you know, several uh, hundred yards or something that we might be able to build in the near future. Um, The the technology to keep the spacecraft warm might require a, a nuclear reactor, something like you find in a nuclear power plant, but miniaturized, which we really don't know how to do. For, for, and keep operational for 100 years or 200 years for such a voyage. So I, I really think that the challenges are going to be in every single aspect of how this is done. The, the good news is the fundamentals of how you solve these challenges are known. The unknown is how do you take the state of the art of the technology today and get it miniaturized or increased in efficiency to the level we need for the trip. And when you go to the basic physics side of it, nature's not saying, oh, you can't do that. They're just saying you have to think on a different scale than you're used to thinking. You have to think planetary-wide energy totals. You have to think about building big spacecraft in space that, that make the International Space Station you know, look like a tugboat. So it, it, it's, it's hmm. a matter of scale. Yeah, well, and, and I appreciate you giving us that, that, uh, that idea. It, it just does all sound um, – like it is going to be a a big job, a lot of work ahead, but a lot of potential for for value and, and beauty. I 
I find it as I've gotten older, and I think perhaps some many in our audience probably feel this way, that science is becoming much more interesting to me. And so I, I read a little bit about this, your, your wonderful book, A Traveler's Guide to the Stars, which is getting great reviews, by the way, talks a little bit about one, one element of science that I, I, I have heard a little bit about, but I'd like you to explain it. And that is this idea of solar sails. Just the name, I think, really gives it, uh, you know, something that, that's very attractive. But maybe tell us about solar sails and, and how a solar sail, uh, that's S-A-I-L, solar sail, can help us build this next generation starship that'll, that'll accomplish some of this interstellar travel. Well, there are, there are many propulsion options that could, could make it, not many, there are some propulsion options that could make it work, but my personal favor is the light sail. And I, I'm going to use the term light sail as opposed to solar sail because I think the first incarnation of it will be solar sails, but will eventually go to a laser-driven sail, which was, is more powerful than a, a solar sail. But fundamentally, it, the understanding of how this provides the propulsion for going to the stars or anywhere, really, is light – the, the light in your room, the sun shining outside, uh, is made up of little particles called photons. And these photons, although they have no rest mass, they do have momentum. So when they reflect from you or reflect from anything, they're giving it a slight push. Now, this push on Earth uh, in the gravity well and in the air and with the air vents in your room keeping you warm or cool, depending on the season, uh, the force is extremely small. In fact, if you were to go outside on a clear, sunny day and, and put some kind of lightweight, reflective, uh, aluminum foil-like substance on uh, two soccer fields right next to each other, and the sun is directly overhead, the total push of the photons, all that light falling on those two soccer fields, is about the same as you feel by putting a quarter and a penny in your hand and the force of gravity acting on that quarter and a penny. Now, the, the, the good thing is when you get out into space away from gravity and air and that light falls on there, the light reflects from it and pushes on it just like the wind pushes on a sailing ship sail and reflects from the canvas of the sail. So the light reflecting from this big, large, lightweight, reflective sail will push on that sail a little bit. The nice thing is it's constant. Uh, in space, the sun's always shining. We're in trouble if it stops. And, and that slow push accelerates you to higher and higher speeds. And you can potentially go faster with these systems than any rocket that we know how to build today or in the foreseeable future. The problem is with the solar sail, they work really, really well in the inner solar system out to about the orbit of Mars. But as you move away from the sun, the sunlight gets dim. So the useful thrust starts dropping off. That's why I think we would start out with solar sails to fly around the solar system. And then for interstellar voyages, we transition to a system where we build huge lasers in space, not on the ground, that shine focused light on the sail to accelerate it rapidly out of the solar system and perhaps have a couple of these power stations uh, because even laser light uh, diverges or spreads out with distance. So you have a few of these power stations in place in the outer solar system, and as the craft is leaving the solar system, you can continue to accelerate it with these uh, laser power stations. And if you do that, you can take a fairly small probe, get it moving fast enough to cover that distance in maybe 100 years, maybe a little bit more than that. So it, it's entirely possible, but we're a long way from being able to do it. And we have to start out with, with solar sails, 
and then their technological descendants, the laser sail, uh, will, will take us to the stars. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful answer. Thank you so much. Uh, that's so helpful. I, and that that's really one of the reasons to go see Les Johnson. You'll hear this explanation in terms that um, really are uh, understandable. One of the reviewers for Les Johnson's new book, A Traveler's Guide to the Star, David Weber, who's a best-selling author himself, says, Les Johnson is that rare breed of writer who can make rocket science comprehensible even to the lay person. This is highly recommended stuff. So congrats to you on this wonderful new book, Les Johnson. I just have a couple more questions for you. We're hearing an awful lot today um, about space tourism, Elon Musk and uh, Sir Richard Branson, of course, um, uh, Bezos. These are companies that are – these are individuals who have companies that are focused on consumer travel uh, into Earth's orbit. But there's a great deal of difference between this term that you use in the book, which is wonderful. You use that in a reading to the astronomical units um, – you know, 93 million miles away is very different than, say, 60 miles above sea level that some of these space tourism uh, companies are taking us. It's almost a joyride, perhaps, by comparison. What what are some of the goals that we need to be aware of that are going to take us beyond one level uh, to the next? Because it just seems to be an enormous jump beyond where we're going now. It, it certainly is going to be an enormous jump, but you know, you start with taking baby steps and we already took those mm-hmm. with the beginning of the space age with uh, Yuri Gagarin, uh, the first person in space, Alan Shepard, uh, uh, the people orbiting, going to the moon, sending our robotic probes all over the solar system. The innovation of uh, the commercial sector getting actively involved for space tourism is not as much a technological one as it is a reusability and cost one. And as the, the price of going to space has dropped, thanks to the uh, market-driven innovations of the folks that you mentioned, that makes it less expensive for space agencies and other companies to launch their payloads into space, whether it be uh, some of the satellites I, I read about in the introduction, weather satellites, communication satellites, global positioning satellites, or people. Uh, once you start doing it more and more, more and more start people start finding reasons to go, and competition drives down that price point even more. I mean, think about uh, flying. The, the cost of the first international jet aircraft flights were, were probably terribly expensive compared to what it costs to fly in coach today. Why is it so much less expensive today? Because we've got thousands of airplanes in the air at any, in the air at any given moment flying people commercially all over the globe. I envision a future where the innovations that are happening today with commercial launch for launching millionaires into space – will eventually lead to making it affordable for the average person to go to space, just like you and I might be able to buy an airline ticket to fly across the country. Uh, Once that's happening, we will be developing the the region of space between the Earth and the Moon and becoming uh, a space industrial society in in this region of space and taking those next steps to expand it to Mars and the outer solar system. So I kind of see an evolutionary view where the innovations that are happening in the marketplace today take us beyond low Earth orbit and each step takes us further and further out until the next logical step is Proxima Centauri and beyond. 
Again, thank you for that. I, I, I hadn't looked at it from this idea of reusability, and certainly the innovations will drive down some of the cost and make that uh, um, perhaps more affordable for, for many. But, but if we're lucky enough to be on board one of these kind of first steps, these baby steps, what do we need? What advice would you give us, our audience, to prepare for one of those flights? How should we think about getting ourselves to a place where we can we can kind of uh, uh, look down on on Earth and see all this beauty? There, there was a book that really influenced me. It was written several years ago, and I heard the author. I think his name was Frank White, and it was called The Overview Effect. And it's a common experience that people who've been to space and looked down on this beautiful blue planet have had, which is that they feel a sense of this is my home, not just where I live in Alabama or, or many listeners live in whatever country they are, U.S. or anywhere else, but as a planet. It's the abode of life in an otherwise very hostile, very unfriendly to life universe as far as we know. And I, I think we need to – I think the experience I would take from that is that we want to continue to improve the human condition without damaging the nest which gave us birth so that we can, as we're moving out into space, take better care of the home planet and spread this beautiful thing called life uh, far and wide throughout the universe. Um, there are ethical questions of whether or not we should, should take life to other worlds. I think people who think we've done nothing but mess up the earth are being grossly unfair um, when, when you look in the aggregate in terms of the quality of life for people and the art and music and just have them go listen to Mozart and tell me that isn't worth preserving. Um, it, we, we need to, to do it carefully, but we need to preserve and protect life here and take it beyond Earth. I think it's almost a moral imperative uh, because while life is confined to this beautiful little basket called Earth, there are lots of things that can imperil that. Just ask the dinosaurs, uh, ask life back at the uh, time of the – uh, previous extinctions that have happened here on the earth. And if we can make uh, our civilization with life a multi-planet species and spread it throughout the universe, then I think we will have done a moral good. And it's something that I hope our descendants uh, will see it that way and take those steps. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for all of this. And, and what, a, what a wonderful way of putting that, too. I like the idea of these moral imperatives, the take better care of the home planet as you as you put it wonderful wonderful stuff of course our guest has been les johnson les johnson is author of many books the newest is a traveler's guide to the stars les johnson will be at smithsonian associates coming up we'll have links to where you can find out more about les johnson's wonderful new book as well as details about his upcoming smithsonian associates presentation Thank you so much for your time, Les Johnson. This has been this has been great, really helpful, and um, certainly I think it give us a new perspective on some of these issues surrounding travel to the stars. Well, th thanks for having me. I appreciate your interest. It was nice speaking with you. My thanks to Les Johnson for his time today. My thanks to Smithsonian for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe, which I'm mentioning in every show because I want to bring attention to the issue of assault rifles, which aren't safe. They're not safe in anyone's hands except the military and law enforcement. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, schools, please, Let's work together to eliminate assault rifles and let's do better. Let's talk about better. 
The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast Smithsonian Associates Inside Science Interview Series. Today's show was edited for length. To hear the full interview, please check out our website for this episode and all episodes at notold-better.com or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and be sure to leave a five-star review or comment wherever you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is NotOldBetter, and we're on Instagram at NotOldBetter, too. The Not Old Better Show is a production of NOBS Studios. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and I hope you'll join me again next time to talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody.